0: Okay, I think I will start. Um, Welcome to the University of Edinburgh, to the Rayburn Room, Um, and welcome to this series of um, uh, special lunchtime lectures that has been put on to um, uh, parallel the festival, obviously, and it's on the theme of enlightenment and popular culture, and we're looking particularly at aspects of theatre. And um, last week we looked at Handel, and handle in the Orient. Uh, next week we're going to look at a little bit at street theatre and another one of my colleagues at the University of Edinburgh is going to talk about that subject. And today I am going to talk about the performance of sociability in the Age of Enlightenment or they do it with mirrors. And uh, just so you know who I am, my name is Stana Nenadich and I am in the School of History and Classics here at Edinburgh University. And what I'm going to do for the next three quarters of an hour or so is tell you a little bit about the way in which ordinary social life and certain kinds of social occasions during the period of the Enlightenment came to have a performative character. We're talking mainly, of course, about the relatively privileged within society, but these are ideas of performance that did have a social impact elsewhere within society. And what I will um, do is indicate over really quite a long period, though much of the emphasis is probably towards the end of the Age of Enlightenment, talking about the late 18th, early 19th century. But I'll indicate what some of the key performing types of activities were, what sorts of performances people engaged in, and in particular, where they fell down in their performance. And much of the illustration that I'm going to use for this is of this sort of character. It takes the form of contemporary social satire, normally produced in the form of satirical prints, um, widely circulated, particularly at the end of the 18th and early part of the 19th century. And these prints provided a reflection or a mirror to society. And I'll say a little bit about these prints in a moment, and I'll say a little bit about the idea of the mirror to society. Now, one can't engage in this kind of discussion without, of course, referring to Jane Austen. And Jane Austen, throughout her uh, canon of literature published in the early 19th century, provides numerous occasions, social occasions, where performance is engaged and The participants fail to meet up with standards. You may recall, those of you who are well-versed in Jane Austen, the the party at Netherfield in Pride and Prejudice, Chapter 18, where Elizabeth Benefit is mortified by her relatives, by the conversation of her mother, by her cousin, Mr. Collins, the clergyman, and by her sister, Mary, who is performing on the piano. Mary's powers were by no means fitted for such a display. Her voice was weak and her manner affected. To Elizabeth, it appeared that had her family made an agreement to expose themselves as much as they could during the evening, it would have been impossible for them to play their parts with more spirit or finer success. And of course, Mary's performance on the piano is halted by Elizabeth's father, who says... We, that will do extremely well, child. You have delighted us long enough. Let the other young ladies have time to exhibit. And this idea of young ladies engaged in a sort of performance or exhibition is nicely illustrated in this slide here, which is one of a series of the early 19th century um, termed The Establishment of Farmer Giles, a uh, wealthy, improving um, uh, English tenant farmer, And this shows his daughter, Betty, performing on the piano for the delight or otherwise of her audience, principal amongst whom is the young man on the right-hand side who is, one assumes, the intended suitor. And this kind of uh, social satire on contemporary performance within a domestic setting, and in particular on performance through music, is constantly lampooned in satirical prints of the early 19th century. So here we have one called "A Little Music" or "The Delights of Harmony," the gentle satire suggesting that the harmony is obviously limited. And here we have a musical family and the different kinds of instruments on show here, and particularly the instruments that young ladies performed on, either the um, the piano, particularly, but are also the harp, or um, in this case, slightly unusually, um, a a, a, um, a larger stringed instrument. Um, Nevertheless, it it is suggesting that this is a common occurrence and one where there was a lot of fun and entertainment to be had. Now, of course, Jane Austen provides us with many occasions, different sorts of performance undertaken by predominantly young women, but it's also something that men are expected to participate in. We all know that Mr. Darcy's performance at the first ball that he attends um, in Pride and Prejudice falls far short of what is expected because he will not dance, and this generates negative comment amongst those who attend. And what is normally on display in this kind of performance is what was Con- considered by contemporaries to be various forms of social accomplishment, here's a satire on social accomplishment. Accomplishments um, took various forms, and obviously there were negative accomplishments. And the satire, in this case, on fighting, domestic fighting rather than domestic harmony, points out some of the contrasts between realities and expectations. And this notion of what is real and what is expected is obviously one of constant tension for individuals who lived in the age of enlightenment, but also in social commentaries through fiction or through what were normally called conduct books, books that were produced to try and inform you as to how you should behave. Central to this notion of performance is the idea of what is normally called politeness. And politeness is a complex, quite slippery idea to to grasp in the 18th century. And inevitably, these were ideas about behavior and relationships that were constantly shifting through time. So getting the rules right was always something that you had to be aware of, and there was a shift through time. But here's an image from um, the 1770s. It's called the polite macaroni. Macaroni is a type of young man dressed in a particular way that evokes the style of Italy, and here he is engaging in a certain type of politeness vis-à-vis the young lady in his life. He's purchasing flowers to give to her. And all sorts of messages about demeanor, about the uses of the body, about ways of interacting, about what you say and what you don't say are contained within this notion of politeness. And politeness is seen as for the good of society. So it's a kind of moral quality as well as a social quality that is for the good of society. And politeness And the performance of certain kinds of manners and certain kinds of accomplishments within the broader stage of politeness obviously operated in public and ideally also in your private life. And there were certain set occasions when these kinds of performances took place. Here, for instance, is one of the occasions or one of the venues where such a performance would take place. This, of course, is... The Assembly Room, and in this particular instance, this is the Edinburgh Assembly Room, um, a recent photograph. But it shows much of the essence of what such a room would comprise. And in such a room, all sorts of complex social events would take place in the 18th and early 19th century. There would be dancing, obviously. There would be conversation. There would be promenading walking up and down and engaging in a certain kind of physical use of the body through walking. There would be consumption of food and drink in certain limited forms. There would be card playing. And the different participants in an assembly, the way we see it today doesn't necessarily grasp how it might have been in the 18th or early 19th century, but of course this sort of social venue was also commonly satirized. And here you have uh, an image showing, well, there's two things going on here. One is the comedy in the foreground, but it's a nice suggestion in the background of what an assembly was about in the early part of the 19th century. Dancing on the left-hand side, musical performance uh, by paid musicians, of course, in the gallery, and then tea and card playing in the room to the right. And the satire here is rules for a warm-weather ball, uh, ball, and here you have a rather large lady um, talking about whether she should dance or whether she should play cards. And the satire is partly about her costume but also about physical size. And part of the issue of performance and politeness by the time you get to the late 18th century is very much about the physical body and the suitability or otherwise for certain kinds of performance of certain types of physical body. Uh, Going back to the original print that I showed you of Betty, the farmer's daughter, playing the piano. Well the simple fact is in the messages of the 18th century, early 19th century, Betty is well suited to the farmyard, to milking cows, but not necessarily to the drawing room and playing the piano. Now all sorts of contemporary literature engaged with going to the assembly. It's really a stock piece of set social comedy from 1760s, 1770s really through to the 1830s, 1840s, the notion of how you behave on public or semi-public occasions such as these. And central to the social comedy about attending such events, as represented in, um, in comic literature, is the whole notion of the rules of engagement, if you like. And I suppose one of the best evocations of this is in some of the early female comic literature, such as that, penned by um, Fanny Burney. Evelina, for instance, very, very popular novel of 1778, which is concerned with the young, innocent girl entering society and encountering various social events and negotiating her way through them and ends with a a moral resolution of her life, but also an indication of a kind of series of engagements that allow her to learn uh, the, the art of society. Evelina, at first appearance upon the great and busy stage of life, as described by Fanny Burney, goes to many social occasions, including a ball. And Evelina is constantly monitoring herself ...in these social occasions. So she says, I was shocked to find how silly, how childish a part I acted at her first ball. And later she says, a confused idea now for the first time entered my head... ...of something I had heard of the rules of assembly. But I'd never been at one before. I've only danced at school. And so giddy and unheedless was I that not once did I consider the impropriety of refusing one partner and afterwards accepting another. So in fact she does have rather a garbled idea about the rules of an assembly. But the purpose of the literature, of the fiction, is to show these kinds of problems in action, to make social comedy out of them, and to inform the readers as a form of conduct book in the way that more mainstream, just um, um, non-fictional conduct books stick to the same. So dancing... And the kinds of activities that go alongside dancing were performed in assembly rooms. They were performed in venues like this or in some of the buildings in venues like this. This is um, one of the um, pleasure gardens in London. Many of these, of course, more developed in um, the capital city than elsewhere. But in a pleasure garden like this, you would have promenading. This is an image from the um, 1740s. You would have promenading, you would have music, you would have tea, you would have dances as well. And negotiating the rules of these kinds of venues is very important. Learning to dance was a requirement of polite society. So inevitably, learning how to dance was represented in the print satire of the day. Here you have um, a fairly gentle comedy from um, round about uh, oh, 1790 or thereabouts, a dancing master's ball. So for young youngsters, boys and girls would learn to dance in this sort of way. Parents and um, other adults observe the occasion. Note in the background there is a very prominently placed mirror, and I'll come back to mirrors, as there have been in many of these uh, prints as we've gone along. But not only children, of course. Many adults were taught how to dance. They perhaps missed the opportunity when they were younger, or they were people who were rising into particular positions within society. And adult dancing, and uh, here we have a dance, uh, dancing academy for adults, quite um, uh, brutally satirized in many instances, and you have um, men dancing with one another. Within the background there, um, someone has been taught how to stand properly. And obviously, again, physical attributes are brought into question. In the back, there is um, on the back wall, there is an image of the ideal dancer and an ideal position rather than a mirror. And here is what I always think is a rather cruel satire Um, from the 1770s, on boarding school education, which shows um, two young ladies being taught by a French dancing master, and often in the idea of social performance, the evocation of French manners or French politeness, and the criticism of these as far too elaborate and immoral for the British taste. Uh, That's being represented here. And you would often find in these kinds of images, as in the foreground on the left, animals being represented as somehow um, providing a mirror to the individuals engaged in performance and obviously the kind of street aspect of performing animals. The subject of the lecture next week is about street performance. Um, uh, Performing animals in streets as a sort of mirror to polite performance. And then the French aspects of this, which are often then um, embellished with notions of sexuality and immorality, means that this whole notion of performing through dance was a very delicate balance that contemporaries had to achieve. And again, in the background, there is a mirror. This is the kind of costume in the 1770s that a young woman might wear to attend such an occasion. I'll show you one or two um, costumes as we go along. An elaborate ball dress. Um, This is the sort of costume you might also wear in the theatre if you attended the theatre. That's um, an item in the Victoria and Albert Museum. But throughout all of this, one of the issues that I've stressed is the notion of monitoring yourself and devices such as contemporary social satire through prints or through literature acting as a kind of mirror into which you look, see aspects of yourself which you then bring back into yourself in order to improve your behaviour or in order to engage in a certain kind of social behaviour. And it's worth saying that the mirror both in the reality of mirrors, and this is a mirror, a very elaborate mirror and chimney piece in the Victorian Albert Museum, which is from a London um, drawing room from the 1720s, a drawing room um, uh, and a house that had belonged to a local clergyman in London. This idea of the mirror as a real kind of object that reflects your social behavior is of course a very powerful reality in the 18th century. It's a powerful reality in interiors. So we've been looking at certain prints that have mirrors in them. And it was um, an age when there was a very, very considerable production of mirrors for interiors. The technology of making glass developed in the 18th century. Um, The idea of using uh, reflective surfaces to enhance the light in a room. So it is adding to real enlightenment but also the notion of a mirror in which you observe your own behavior. So that mirrors over a chimney piece were often paralleled by portraits or other kinds of social images over a chimney piece. And in looking at both of them, you are seeing aspects of yourself. And of course, the notion of the mirror is very topical. I mean, there is a vast um, Enlightenment theory behind this. Um, uh, Many writers within the Enlightenment spoke about the mirror to society or the notion of inspecting or spectating within society and yourself or observing society. These sort of interactive ideas of observation spectating the mirror are obviously then contained within contemporary literature, particularly newspapers and journal publications, and survive through to the present. So it's a very powerful um, kind of uh, concept within Enlightenment thought as it is popularized and then made available to a wider public. And in many ways, the satirical prints that I've been showing are also part of the notion of the mirror to society. This, for instance, is a very nice print, and it's one of many of this genre. (coughs) What it shows is an image of a caricature shop early, um, I think the date's 1801 on this. Um, And what you have here is a shop. This is what these print seller shops would have looked like. Um, Have various prints on display in the window. So this is what you would have seen if you wanted to buy a print or laugh at a print. They're not just funny prints. Some of them are very serious. Um, Got at the bottom what might be a slightly salacious print. And there you have the crowd observing, and this is kind of interesting cross-section of what a crowd might have looked like in early 19th century London. Most of these were produced in London. (coughs) So the idea of the crowd includes people who are not necessarily polite. They're not necessarily people who engage in the performance of sociability in their own lives, Uh, but nevertheless they observe it, they will laugh at it, Um, They will wish to see what's going on. And there in the uh, door you have the owner of the shop, who may well himself be an engraver or a caricaturist. This is a real portrait. He is looking at the crowd, looking at his pictures in the window, which are reflecting back at themselves aspects of their own experience. So these are very, very powerful contemporary metaphors. And here, just to reinforce the idea of the mirror and music, And the notion of ideal behavior, again, an early 19th century print called Harmony Before Matrimony. and need to say the series, because these were often produced in series, um, is one that goes on to suggest that after matrimony, harmony goes out of the window. So dancing and music, very, very important areas of social performance, and they evolve through time in really quite distinct um, ways. Another aspect of social performance on which there is a vast emphasis is the whole business of taking tea. Taking tea, which may take place in a room such as this, and this is a a, a nice um, contemporary uh, uh, room that exists here in Edinburgh. It's in um, Gladstone's land. It's a 17th century building, um, represented here as it would have appeared in the early part of the 18th century. And you have in the background an architectural feature, uh, a niche, sometimes called a buffet niche, which has on display various items of china, whose purpose is a sort of theatre. So although nobody in this room is taking tea, there is a kind of theatrical representation of a particular type of activity. Taking tea... Was represented in numerous forms over the course of the 18th century. Here you have um, an early portrait from the 1730s that shows a family. This is a portrait in the Victorian Albert Museum a family taking tea with quite a grand display of tea china on, well, tea silver actually, on the table there. Taking tea not only required certain kinds of performance relative to the tea, but it also generated certain types of props. Most of these props um, were small, they were dainty. Uh, You could come into all sorts of mishaps if you knocked them over, if you were clumsy, if you didn't handle your clothing correctly. This is a little tea table from the um, 1730s. And it shows, well, it's slightly unusual because of the, um, the the feet on the table, but it shows the kind of paraphernalia of giving tea in the home as a social event to which women, but also men, were, in li- um, uh, were invited. And it shows the vast amount of relatively delicate equipment that you had to negotiate your way around. So behaving appropriately both as the the hostess, but also as a guest, relative to this delicate equipment, um, is is quite a performance that you have to learn. And young women in particular are taught how to do this at their schools, at their boarding schools, giving tea afternoons to their friends or their brothers, normally teenagers, is part of the, um, the, the teaching that girls received. And some of the items that you would have had on the tea table might include an object like this, a Wedgwood tea cup or a Wedgwood tea service in this kind of black um, um, decoration style, black basalt wear. And this kind of tea china, often dark-coloured, was there to show the attractiveness of the woman's hands. So white, pale, elegant hands against dark-coloured tea china, is part of the performance. There's quite a lot of preoccupation with hands in the 18th century. These types of objects, um, uh, the tea caddy, this is obviously a late 18th century neoclassical style of tea caddy, and the performance of unlocking it, taking out the tea, making the tea at the table, is part of a kind of sociability where you as the hostess are under a certain kind of scrutiny. And not only was that scrutiny um, part of how you use these various props, it's also reflected back at you by some of the props themselves. Here, for instance, is an early 18th century. Again, the date's about 1730s. um, Tea tray, it's a Japan tea tray. And you would have your cups in the little curves around the edge. But in the middle, there is a scene showing women, and I think men, taking tea. So even the objects themselves may have images on them that reflect back at you what this social occasion is supposed to look like. This is the type of clothing in the 1770s a polite young woman would wear to a tea occasion, a much simpler dress, um, much more natural, though as was pointed out by my colleague last week, there's nothing natural when you look at what is underneath this kind of clothing. But uh, again, a V&A costume. Um, But around your shoulders, you may have an object like this. This is a um, handkerchief, or what we would today call um, a a scarf. It's the sort of thing that you may have in your hand, but you may also drape it around your shoulders. And represented on this handkerchief are a series of themes from the um, pastoral poem The Gentle Shepherd. And The Gentle Shepherd was one of the types of poetry that you may wish to talk about during the course of a tea table conversation. Gentle Shepherd by, of course, Alan Ramsay, published in the uh, 1720s, but very, very popular in Scotland throughout the 18th century. And Alan Ramsay also produced um, a, a, a series of poems that he called the Tea Table Miscellany. Again, they were largely on pastoral themes. And it's the sort of thing that may form the subject of your polite conversation within an event such as taking tea. So knowing what to talk about, knowing how to conduct yourself, very important at tea. And needless to say, the tea table was itself a subject of satirical comment through satire. This is a very, very early um, observation of the tea table. great deal of text appended to it. Much of the data is round about, um, it's about 1700, 1710. You can see ladies sat around a tea table, fairly solid tea table, nothing complicated about that table. You're not going to knock it over by accident. There's a display of china in the wall. There's a mirror, and there are various men looking in the, at the window concerned about the gossip and the idleness of these women. So that association, certainly in the early 18th century, between idleness and taking tea was part of a moral questioning of this particular type of performance. By the 1740s, this is another satire, um, here the comedy is built around a particular preoccupation with objects. So you've got a slightly ridiculous couple there in the middle looking at a teacup and a tea saucer. And um, there are various images on uh, the walls that suggest their um, ridiculous preoccupation with clothing. There is um, um, an animal in the foreground, a a sort of performing monkey, and there is a a child, a black child, um, uh, who many black children were um, used as servants. But again, this notion of of, um, uh, consumption and luxury and a kind of ridiculousness. That's what you were getting in the middle of the 18th century. By the end of the 19th century, the kind of moral discourse about tea has largely disappeared. Um, But nevertheless, uh, or certainly for the polite classes, but nevertheless, the idea of tea as a a potential source of disaster was commonly um, represented. So here you've got tea just over with a game of consequences to begin, about to begin. Common pairing of taking tea and playing cards as a social event And if you read this print across it, you see that somebody's knocked somebody's elbow, who's top-tipped the tea onto somebody else who has done something else. And normally somewhere in these prints, somebody's wig disappears. And losing your wig for a man is the sort of ultimate failure in terms of social performance. And there are loads and loads of these. It's a very, very popular genre. Um, Here's taking tea in a tea garden's young man with a kettle Seems to be flirting with another young man, possibly, and kettle ends up over old man's foot. And here is one of my favorite, the tea party, or English manners and French politeness. And uh, the joke here, which is actually explained quite um, uh, in detail in the text below, uh, the joke is that in English custom, um, if you put your teaspoon on the saucer, the hostess takes it as the message that you want another cup of tea. But this is not the convention in France. So this uh, French gentleman has kept putting his teaspoon on the saucer. His hostess has filled up the cup. He feels obliged to drink it, and I think he's drunk 17 cups of tea. And, um, as it were, human nature has taken over, and he's being asked to be excused. So a little bit of... Um, taking a friend, uh, fun at the idea of the rules being somewhat variable. So tea drinking, very, very quintessentially female type of activity, but this notion of uh, performance is not just to do with women, of course. It is also to do with men. Um, if the, 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 the social occasion of taking tea is the main set piece for women, the social occasion for men where they engage in certain kinds of performance is without doubt dinner. Um, everybody more or less has dinner, but not everybody is expected to perform at dinners. And of course, there is a convention uh, within elite society in the 18th century that at a certain point in the meal, which may well be signalled by quite elaborate performances with dishes on the table and tablecloths being uh, removed as each course goes through and servants behaving in certain ways. But at a certain point, there is a signal that the ladies present withdraw to leave men behind. Now, there is quite a lot of social commentary and satire on dining. Um, here's one uh, from the oh, 1740s or 50s, um, and it's, it's a simple satire on uh, good dinner sport because somebody's eating and talking at the same time, and they obviously appear to be choking. But the main satire that tends to come in conjunction with the dinner table is not so much to do with the food, though there is a great deal of commentary on excessive consumption of food, it is more to do with the drink that is available at these occasions. And the drink is the drink that comes particularly at the end of the meal. Because at the end of the meal, the convention tended to be that women withdraw, men are left behind to engage in certain types of conversation and that conversation tends to be accompanied by heavy-duty alcohol rather than simply wine, so spirits start to come into play. And in many circumstances, this was particularly popular in Scotland, um, the spirits took the form of punch, so they were watered down with other substances, uh, normally sugar and lemons and hot water. And the making of these punches were normally undertaken at the table itself by the host. So he would have his own special recipe. He would have his punch bowl, and this would be part of a performance of hospitality. And needless to say, many punch bowls were highly decorated, prized uh, items. And this particular punch bowl does in fact show, this is from the, this is, uh, uh, an English-produced English produced but decorated in Holland and was given as a wedding present in Holland uh, from the 1750s. And this shows men sat around a table drinking punch and smoking tobacco. Now, the drinking of alcohol in male company following dinner was normally accompanied by toasts. And toasting, which is drinking accompanied by an elaborate proposal of somebody or something that should be toast, often given with great rhetorical flourish, a sort of little mini lecture, uh, requiring a certain kind of presence and ability to extemporize, as well as drinking. I mean, many younger men in particular were just so stage-struck by this requirement that they give toasts. And those who were a little self-effacing or shy found it a great ordeal to be required to give toasts. But of course, the ordeal is not just the theatre of, the, uh, of the of the of the toast itself, but it's keeping your decorum whilst consu- consuming vast quantities of alcohol. And needless to say, decorum was commonly lost. And um, here you have a very nice image, very very uh, famous one, of course, by Hogarth, uh, which shows decorum lost amongst a group of men engaged in drinking. One is not entirely sure what the, um, uh, the, the occasion prior to this is, but they're drinking punch, and many of them are on the floor, and several, if not all, are either losing their wigs or their wigs are about to vanish, and this notion of the wig as signaling a certain kind of propriety and a certain kind of public persona. I think most of the gents around us here Oh, this one's got its own hair, but many of those, uh, that's the later one, but many of them are wearing wigs. And this is very much to do with your public persona. And of course, maintaining your proper performance through this, and obviously many people couldn't maintain the proper performance, was very, very important indeed. And not only for men was there the whole issue of, Drink and toasting, there is also the issue of conversation. Now, women engage in conversation as a kind of form of performance at the tea table, but men are also uh, required to engage in certain types of conversation. And certain types of conversation is a form of speaking that refers to certain topics appropriate for certain social occasions and represents you, the individual, as polite, and not silly, if you like. And one individual who gives us a really quite remarkable um, insight to the kind of self-inspection and the degree of almost neurotic preoccupation. It's fair to say it was neurotic. Neurotic preoccupation with themselves and what they are saying in certain public environments is this chap in the middle, and that, of course, is James Boswell. And here you have Boswell taking tea, with Samuel Johnson on the right-hand side and his wife. It's one of a series satirizing um, the Scottish tour of 1773. But James Boswell in London in uh, 1761 gives us an insight to how a young man in a big public environment seeking to impress his elders and betters because he wanted to get them to do various things for him. Um, how he reflects on his his own conversation, as well as his clothing, of course. He's very concerned about his clothing and what sorts of events he goes to. But this is what he says. Since I came up, that is to London, I have begun to acquire a composed, genteel character very different from a rattling, uncultivated one for which some time past I have been fond of. I have discovered that we may be, in some degree, whatever character we choose. Besides, practice forms a man to anything. I am now happy to find myself cool, easy, and serene. And this, of course, is the the role he seeks to achieve. Of course, he's constantly finding he can't keep it up. But nevertheless, this notion of cool, easy, and serene, and having the right topics of conversation to match, are part of an expectation for the enlightened gentleman. On occasions like this, taking tea, or like this. The inconveniences of a crowded drawing room, which is when most of the conversation would take place and when is, which is, of course, where um, you're likely to um, encounter all sorts of problems. So social performance is very much a part of the enlightenment and an expectation that certain people engage in certain ways, in set-piece events, and that This is monitored both by you as an individual, by those observing you, and it's made fun of for the edification of the population at large. And I thought I'd finish this by just making reference, really, to the theatre itself and the degree to which the real theatre, as it occurred in the 18th and early 19th century. It was also embraced within this notion of domestic or semi, semi-public social performance. Needless to say, many people went to the theatre, and the theatre itself was often represented in print satire So here you have, uh, which shows the audience rather than what's going on on the stage. So here you have the effects of tragedy. All sorts of people uh, re- reacting. Lady in the foreground appears to be being offered smelling salts. She's overcome by the effects of tragedy. Here you have John Bull at a comedy with various grotesques in the audience responding to what's going on. And of course, these sorts of images give us as historians a very good insight to what the interiors of these theatres may have, uh, have appeared um, at that point in time. Individuals who were famous in the theatre were satirised and some of the characteristics of the actors and actresses certainly by the late 18th century who were part of the world of the theatre were commonly reflected on in this way. So here you have an actress um, putting on the costume of um, uh, some male character and the notion of Miss Brazen in breeches. So she's not quite respectable. And although in the uh, 18th century, certainly from the age of Handel onwards, I suppose, famous theatrical performers were part of the sort of fringes of polite society, um, nevertheless, the notion that they were somehow suspect, socially ambiguous, did remain. And of course, we know, to go back to um, Jane Austen, if you think about the scenes in Mansfield Park, where there is a performance, a domestic performance of a play, uh, which is the play "Lovers' Vows," entirely for a local, you know, the, the local private audience. Nevertheless, there is massive mar- moral ambiguity about participating in that play because some of the individuals involved are young unmarried women, and because of this contemporary notion of what you do reflecting back on yourself and those around you and the idea of performance being a a, a moral imperative in many ways. The, 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 The contemporary ambiguity of performing in a play is one that to us reading Jane Austen today just looks rather strange but to contemporaries would have been very nuanced indeed. And yet, representations of theatrical figures and things to do with the theatre were a commonplace as part of the general environment of sociability in the 18th and early 19th century. There were, for instance, in the later 18th century, many porcelain figurines, such as this one, sold and purchased for, for room decoration. And I can't for the life of me recall who this individual is, but it's one of the contemporary Actors, so it's a portrait of a contemporary actor from the London stage in costume performing one of his roles. And there were many of these, particularly popular amongst women and normally found in rooms that women occupied. There were tiles produced, and um, here are a couple. This one shows Mrs. Barry. This is a Delft tile, um, which may have been used to decorate fireplaces. There are large numbers of these in the v missus Barry in costume. Here she was, famous contemporary actress. Here's another one in one of her tragic roles. And even objects like fans, which you would use in set occasions, such as uh, the assembly or going to the theatre itself, less likely to use within a pre- exclusively domestic context. Nevertheless, fans often had representations on them that were of a theatrical character. Uh, this evokes um, ideas of, of Italian theatre. So the theatre, the actual theatre and going to the theatre and actual performing in a theatrical sense within polite society still had its moral moral resonances. But the Material culture, if you like, of the theatre was part of the environment that informed enlightened performance through sociability. So next week, our next performance will be the next step down. And my colleague, uh, colleague Adam Fox, also in History and Classics at Edinburgh, is going to come along and talk about 18th century street theatre, Bedlamites and Buffoons. We have about a quarter of an hour, so if anybody wishes to ask me questions, I'm very happy to answer them. But could I ask you to do so through this microphone that's coming around because all of this is being recorded. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for a most interesting talk. Where could I get copies of your pictures and even more. I'm looking, I collect costume
1: prints oh. and can't quite find m- many of the 18 and earlier.
0: Well, all of the images that I've shown you today are um, in a, a, a public collection which is available on the web. So you can, I have just downloaded them ah. from the web and it's the Lewis, ah. well, it, well there is two actually. It's either the Victorian Albert Museum digital collection or the Lewis Walpole Library Collection, which is at Yale University, and I will write these down for you afterwards. Thank you. Very They're very, much very indeed. easy to get hold of on the web. Super. I mean, purchasing them is increasingly difficult because the, there is a massive um, demand for these things, and, and they can be very expensive now. Yes, I, I would download the pictures. But you could get them uh, as downloads, and you can order if you want photographic, you know, a quality. Photograph. You can certainly yeah. get those quite easily. Yeah. So I, I will give you. Thank you very much. You're very welcome.
1: Put the links from the website.
0: Yes. Yes. Uh, uh, no, they're fantastic resources, and they're all available on the web. Uh,
1: who was for us, F O R E S. Who uh, produced these... Um, <coughs> Uh, And it released um, extraordinary pictures of fat people
0: and so on in the early years. Well, I'm I'm sure he's just one of the uh, uh, caricature artists. There were very many of these and they tended to have their own. I mean, they they tended to work within particular sort of set genres. Some of them had their own particular takes. But there were large numbers of these individuals. So I don't particularly know this individual. But uh, some of them are a little bit obscure, actually. Um, We're not talking about high art necessarily, but obviously very, very powerful popular art. Though if you want to see more, go to the source that I've just referred to, to this lady, because uh, they are fantastically entertaining. This is how I while away my dreary hours in the office if I want to entertain (laughs) myself, because they're, they're, they're really good fun. Uh, Thank you very much for for your talk. You you did mention the uh, French dancing masters and uh, foreign models of sociability. I I wanted to know um, if there was an impact of the Grand Tour on, on those models because obviously aristocratic young men were expected to tour Italy or France, and uh, this gave rise to numerous occasions of social uh, intercourse and, uh, and problems in different settings. So did, did that have any influence on manners and sociability in, in Britain? Well, it, it clearly did. Um, and, of course, the, the whole... I mean, there is a massive preoccupation in the 1770s, early 1780s, with what is called the macaroni. And the macaroni, we, we saw some of them are quite vicious prints, vicious representations of the, of the body. Um, the macaroni is the young man who has been on the grand tour. So he's been to Italy. So he's like a macaroni. Um, now, many men, and there were also female versions of the macaroni, but they had not necessarily themselves been to Italy. But the Macaroni was a young man who had been excessively influenced by the Grand Tour and had brought back with him these strange ways of conducting his body and these extreme clothing styles. Um, And there were all sorts of things in the 18th century that evoked the Grand Tour or evoked foreign courts, which normally meant Catholic courts. And Some of them seem really quite innocent today, but um, if you went out in public with red heels on your shoes as a young man, then eyebrows would certainly be raised because the red-heeled shoe, certainly the first half of the 18th century, is the sign of the foreign court and is a sign that your politeness is of a morally suspect character. So the art of the grand tour is to go on the grand tour Absorb all the things that you need to absorb, including certain kinds of manners and certain kinds of um, language skills and knowledge. But when you ca- and also you know meeting the right sorts of people and encountering the right sorts of artists and all the rest of it. But when you came back to Britain, you had to behave like a British gentleman. You the, have to forget. You uh, have to forget some of have the have manners. You, you have to filter it. You have to filter it. it. I mean, you have you don't forget it because you know it when you see it and you know it's not British. Um, I should say the term that is normally used was English, because this is very English preoccupation. Um, the, the dancing masters, of course, are not men who have been on the grand tour. They are, they are servants. They are people who work for a living. And the fact that they are French means that they have the most elevated notions of dancing. But it has to be filtered through British common sense.
1: struck in caricature by the use of the kind of the fat person and the thin person to symbolize you know so the fat person is kind of uh, obviously it's got connotations of luxury overindulgence but it's also you know someone who's a little bit kind of silly making a fool of themselves and the thin person you who know, mean and but it's only in the sources I've looked at for a slightly earlier period she she has grown fat it's always a kind of positive positive you know, good good for her. And it's not just kind of, you know, married woman with connotations of maternity or whatever. It's often quite young woman on the cusp of adolescence. I mean, I I don't know whether perhaps, is, is there a kind of, I mean, obviously dress is designed for the the thinner body, and to emphasise a, a thin waist. Mm. But you know, is is there a kind of increasing body fascism in the later 18th century? Or is I mean, do you ever get? Because I don't think I've ever come across anyone you know trying not to be fat. I mean, and obviously you know it shows that you're healthy <laughs> and you're not living. about to die of consumption or whatever. But d- do, do you ever do you ever come across people kind of trying to not be that fat woman in the in the caricature? Um. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, is the answer, Catherine. <laughs> um, and, and um, you know, I've,
0: I've not encountered anybody slimming um, in, in reality. Uh, I do recall hearing... There is obviously a shift at some point in the later 18th century to do with body shape and what that says. Um, and it, it's particularly powerfully articulated through these kinds of prints. I mean, these prints offer a mirror to society, but they are not society. They are a, a preoccupation with certain things. I do recall some years ago um, hearing Roy Porter talk about this very subject about uh, food and who eats what. And there is certainly, whilst I don't recall any sort of real engagement of she's looking too fat, you need to slim down a bit or whatever, um, as as something you can actively shape in your own body, certainly one does see um, discussion of food and who is eating what. So th- th- that idea is there, and there is also, um, you see this with the various social occasions that take place, what sort of food is appropriate at certain points of time. The time you take your e- afternoon and evening meal was
1: very important. Yes,
0: and all of that does change through time to accommodate different types of Social expectation yeah. at different kinds of meals, but but you're absolutely right in terms of you know trying to to map onto this a contemporary preoccupation with actively creating your own body because the ideal is thin. I really don't. I haven't seen it myself, but then again, I haven't looked for it, Catherine. So um, it's amazing what you find when you go back and look for it. So it may actually be there. It may be there. You mentioned women taking tea and then men having drinks at the end of a meal when the women had withdrawn. But was there an acceptable time for women to drink alcohol and how much could they acceptably drink? Because presumably it did affect their behaviour as well. Oh, yes. Um, well, the, old, the whole thing about women drinking alcohol is, um, uh, and yes, it does affect, affect their behaviour. Um, I think that there was a massive preoccupation about this in the mid-18th, uh, well, sort of early mid-18th century with the, as, as a popular phenomenon to do with gin drinking. Um, but that isn't necessarily um, elite women, but plainly one of the greatest moral failures an ordinary woman could do is be drunk on gin and neglect her children. So uh, the very famous... Um, Hogarth print called Gin Lane which shows in the foreground the mother with the baby and the baby is falling over the stairs and is about to be killed but of course that print was matched by another called Beer Street and Beer Street says that if you drink beer it's more wholesome and good for you but in terms of elite women I mean elite women do drink alcohol um and doubtless some of them are drunk. But I really, I mean, Jane Austen never really raises this, but, but there may well be, and of course Jane Austen is the touchstone for so many things that the social late 18th century social historian is preoccupied with, but it may well be that coded within uh, descriptions of ridiculous behaviour, there is an assumption that they may have drunk too much, because women do drink.
1: You didn't mention uh, religion taking any part in the social behaviour uh, during your lecture, and I was wondering whether this was separated from the social side and kept in a separate box, or whether it was you know, integral to the social behaviour as they performed during their daily lives.
0: Um. Well, it is very interesting that you say this, because um, one of the people sitting at the back is uh, one of my uh, doctoral students, and we have been having this very conversation in recent times. Um, I mean, obviously, going to church, the spiritual life is separate from, um, you know, one's, as it were, secular social life. And most people in the 18th century, to a greater or lesser extent, appear to have had a spiritual life. <laughs> Most people from this level of society went to church, not necessarily on a regular basis, or not necessarily weekly, but they certainly went to church. And the act of going to church is part of a spiritual observation, but it's also a social occasion where you would expect to do certain things. I mean, certainly in the church in the 18th century, there are, certainly in Scotland, which is probably what I know better than um, England, there there are concerns with aspects of display in church and in Scotland, the notion of a, a Calvinist church as modest, not to do with you know to do with the inner world, not to do with the outer. I mean, the big thing that causes tremendous controversy in 18th century Scotland in rural churches is when lads stop wanting to sit within the congregation, and start to construct what is normally called the Laird's Loft, and the Laird's Loft is an elevated pew where they are removed from the ordinary people and on show so that they and their friends would sit in the Laird's Loft, they would be above the masses, there is a theatrical dimension to it, and this was bitterly bitterly resented. Um, uh, But that's a complex issue, It's, it's partly to do with a sense of social distance, it's to do with wanting to be wanting to come and go without having to go through the throng. Um, Going to the right church could be important. Um, You are likely to meet certain sorts of people in the right church, and there are print satires that show churches and the interiors of churches. um, In the Hogarth series that's called the... um, um, the, the, About the Apprentice, I can't remember the exact name of of the series... The, the Industrious and idle Apprentice, exactly. Thank you, Ludmilla. Um, one of the early scenes shows him going to church. So he's, it's the interior of a big London church and he is engaged in his devotions, sat in one of the London pews. Um, and there may be others here who know a great deal more about that myself, than me, but um, I'm not aware of it as being so much a central part of this kind of social performance. I think we Probably take one more question in order to finish in a timely way. Uh, just a quick Could you say something about the social origins of the satirists? I know it's hard to generalise, but whether they were part of that polite society to, to no. have access to it and therefore criticise, no. or whether they come from a lower—I uh, mean, they—they—they they, they tend to come from a, um, a lower uh, level of that society. I mean, they—they they were often. It was often a part of the, um, the, the kind of range of professional artists. Um, they were often, uh, if they were very skilled engravers, involved in engraving um, other kinds of art that was being produced for a popular market. Um, they, uh, I mean, I... I To tell you the truth, Francis, I don't know a great deal about their actual social origins in terms of where they came from, but I suspect of the few that I do know know of, they may well have been from skilled working class backgrounds and simply had uh, a bit of a talent for um, mimicking and, and comic work, and certainly there are some Scottish cases, late 18th century cases like that. Uh, They may well have been hack painters of one sort or another. And of course, the art world is a very complex, the commercial art world is a very complex uh, world that goes from high art at one end through all sorts of other forms of reproduction down to very low art at the other. And many of them will have done lots of different things. I mean, famous individuals like um, Hogarth painted portraits and was quite a solid, middling member of London society in his day. Um, doubtless, he personally engaged in certain kinds of polite activity within his own personal life, but he was not a member of elite society. Okay, uh, well, I am both my own compare and the performer. Um, so I, um, it is half past, uh, not half past two, half past one, and this is an hour-long uh, event. So ne- uh, next time? Um, it's gone off the screen, Um, my colleague Adam Fox talking about street theatre. Thank you very much indeed for coming.